In the math world, how many of you guys, like me, hate division? Got a picture of a problem up here that I, I saw online this morning. It just gave me a headache just, just looking at it. If you could pull that up, please, Aaron. That is the stuff of nightmares for me. How many of you guys love division? Just two. Most of us hate division. Bill Swenson is not here. He's the math professor. He would, he would be screaming blasphemy from the back, but he's on vacation. I hate division in math. I hate division in relationships as well. How many of you hate that tension that comes when division happens? I was uh, talking with a, a counselor friend of mine a couple weeks ago, and he was sharing with me, he, he's, he's got insight into relationships and from a biblical perspective, and he was sharing that many people have such a fear of division that they can no longer speak truth to each other in their relationships. And what they'll often do is say something nice to the person with their, when they're with them, and then they'll get online and blast them behind their backs. He said that's one of the big problems in today's world. And he says, Jesus didn't call us to be nice. He called us to be kind, and there's a difference. And he was pointing out that sometimes kindness requires us to say something uh, difficult that, that may even create some division or, or tension in a relationship. Sometimes we need to do that if it's out of love. How, how many of you like me have had someone do that to you in love? They, they see something in your life. They see you going down a path that's harmful to you or your family or your church. Or, and they say, hey, let's go get a milkshake at Culver's. Let's sit down. Let's talk. But i got to share some things that are concerning me. You ever had someone do that? That takes a lot of guts, doesn't it? Because it can create division. I had to do that recently with a friend of mine. And I don't know if you're like me when you come to that moment where you're the one that has to bring the confrontation that may cause division. My, my heart felt like it was going to fall out of my chest. I hate those meetings. As soon as I got ready to make the phone call, I do not enjoy it. And yet, if, if we're honest, it is just a, a part of life. None of us, at least most of us, don't like division. Now, let me throw out another word. It's quite a contrast. How many of us love peace? Yeah, I love peace. I love the kind of peace that Jesus talks about. I'll show you a picture of a place we went to recently. How many of you guys know where that is? Fossil Creek. Fossil Creek. I, I, I love the, the picture so much, I decided I've got to put something about peace on there. So I put this on Facebook this week. I put the verse, my peace I give to you, Jesus. That's what he said to his disciples, right? And John MacArthur wrote about the kind of peace that, that God gives. He gives us peace with the Father when we trust Him. But he also gives us this peace of God that gives us peace in the world. He says people want a peace that deals with the past. One where no strings of conscience dipped in the poison of past sins bind at them and torture them hour by hour. They want a peace that governs the present with no unsatisfied desires gnawing at their hearts. They want a peace that holds promise for the future where no foreboding fear of the unknown and dark tomorrow threaten them. How many would say amen? I love that peace in Jesus. Give me that peace. Don't give me division. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I want to look at some words of Jesus that may shock us in light of this kind of peace that he offers. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 49. You remember, it's a period in Jesus' ministry where the rejection is mounting. Most of the nation is turning away from him. The opposition is growing. And he's turning to his disciples. And he says this in verse 49 of Luke chapter 12. I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. But division. Now, how many of you are saying, what? <laughs> Jesus, I remember all those verses. You know, like Isaiah, the, you're the Prince of Peace. Zechariah, you have that prophecy that, yeah, you bring peace to our nation and lead us in footsteps of peace. And now I'm reading verse 51, Jesus' own mouth. He says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. What's going on? My paradigm's being rocked a little bit by what you're saying, Jesus. I want to break it down a little bit. Maybe you know the song Imagine by John Lennon. Some of you remember the lyrics. Imagine there's no countries. Isn't hard to do. No, nothing to kill or die for. No religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. One more verse. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living life in peace. All right, we look at that vision and there's parts of it biblically that we can't go with, but his, his heart was for unity. And a lot of us want to have a desire for unity. And you know, his heart for unity, there was unity at one point in the universe. There was a triune God in perfect relationship with Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love and mutual respect was perfect. And that triune God created people, put them in a perfect garden where they had perfect unity with Him. Unity was God's original dream. So where did all this talk about division come from? You remember a rebellion. Lucifer, the angel wanted to be God Himself and led a rebellion where a third of the angels left heaven. You'll remember a rebellion in a garden where man chose to disobey the one rule that God gave them and broke that fellowship. They say, where's all the division in the world coming from? It's coming from Satan and it's coming from the sin of mankind. Those who reject God. And ever since that point, there have been two camps. God's children and the children of Satan. Those who believe Jesus, those who reject Him, those who will spend eternity with Him in the new heaven and the new earth, and those who will spend eternity in hell. That's where the division comes from. It's not that Jesus comes to create the division. He just becomes the occasion for division because when He comes, He presents a choice. He is that dividing line. John 3 we all know this verse, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. How many of you know the next verse? That whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus is not the cause of division, but He is the dividing line. 
Everyone in this world, everyone in this room will be divided based on what they do with the person of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's what he was talking about. I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Fire often refers to purification and judgment. And while Jesus did not come in judgment the first time, the biblical picture of Jesus is that when he comes the next time, he will come as the judge. But that next verse, I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I'm under until it's completed. It's talking about the baptism of suffering. Baptism is the picture of being immersed in something. He had to go to the cross where he took our sins upon himself. Felt separation from his father. He had to be judged for our sin before he would become the judge. But make no mistake, the judgment is coming. Now think about this. I think about the peace that we read about on that slide at Fossil Creek. And then I think about the road that it takes to get to that Fossil Creek. How many of you have ever been there? <laughs> Fifteen miles of this. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's the, <laughs> it is the craziest road I've ever been on. I was riding with my dad in, in my truck, and Carolyn and the boys were with another vehicle with my brother and his family. And the whole time, <laughs> 10 miles an hour, your truck's doing that. We saw two cars broken down on the way out that weren't there on the way in. One had a busted axle. <laughs> you talk about a bumpy road on this way to peace. And I think about that as kind of a metaphor. We got this peace from, from Jesus that he offers us inside. And inside the truck, there was peace. I had peace with my father. We were having a great time. We're enjoying our relationship. That's a good picture of the peace we have with our Father through Jesus Christ while we're on this bumpy road. At peace in our hearts because we knew where we were heading to. We knew we were heading to this beautiful oasis. We know we're on our, on our way to heaven. But the road there is often filled with bumps. And it's often filled with division. There were hints of this when Jesus was born. You remember Simeon at the temple, the, the elderly dude that was hanging out there? And, you know, you always like it when people bless your little babies. Mike, you, do, you guys just have when You like it when they say nice things, right? Okay. Simeon says to Mary, This child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Anybody say that? Anything like that to you guys? <laughs> I mean, he goes on to tell Mary, This child will, there will be a sword that will pierce your own soul as well. He's referring to the suffering of Jesus and the fact that some will believe and rise in your son and some will reject him and fall you talk about heavy stuff even at the beginning he is a dividing line we see this idea throughout the new testament you know what james 4 says anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of god some of you bible scholars are thinking wait a second my favorite verse that one they hold up in the field goal john three sixteen says god so loved the world he gave his only son in John 3, he's talking about the people of the world. In James 4, he's talking about the evil system. The world system of lust of the flesh, pride of life. Jesus loves the people of the world. But he says, if you choose to be a friend of the world system, you are an enemy of God. John 17, he's speaking about his disciples and us. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. Set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners 
and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Philippians 3 talks about people of the world. He says their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Are you getting this separation, this division? John 15, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Go on, 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. You talk about a defining line. He's saying, you love this world system. The love of the Father is not in you. He's saying, make a choice. It's as strong as in Joshua 24. The end of Joshua, you remember he looked at those people in the promised land. He said, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The whole emphasis is make a choice. Make a choice for Jesus or against Him. There is no fence to ride. We get this in relationships, right? Guy-girl relationships. I'll see if you guys track with me on this counseling situation that I, that I had part. It was a friend in Ohio. Now, I was talking to her. And, and she told me that she had been dating this guy who's really cute and seemed really nice and stuff. And, and then he broke up with her. Okay? And he started dating someone else. And, and then she came to find out that he was actually hanging out with this other girl before they broke up. And so this guy, a couple weeks later, calls her up and says, Hey, uh, things aren't going so good with my current girlfriend. I was wondering if you would consider maybe going out again. If, if I can't patch this up. <laughs> Give me some counsel. What would you tell the, the guy you're talking to? <laughs> make a choice, dude. My, I'm, I'm out of here. You, you better learn to make a choice. You cannot have your cake and eat it too, right? We know that in human relationships, and yet I'm convicted. How many times do we try to walk that line in our relationship with Jesus? I know you died for me, Jesus. I know, I know you gave it all, but I just want to dabble over here in this world stuff for a while. I, I just want to hang out here for a while. It's okay, right? I know you're a God of grace. I know you cover all my sins. We would never think about that in a human relationship. Why do we think about it that way with Jesus? Sometimes following Jesus requires us to divide. It always requires us to divide ourselves from things of this world. There's a blog out there this week that I read that was so powerful to me. It's a blog called Borrowed Light. And there was an anonymous guest blogger that, that wrote a blog called this, How the Gospel Ended My Same-Sex Relationship. Ten-year relationship. Same-sex was the context. And this is part of what the young lady wrote. Talk about a choice and a division. She said, My hardened heart wasn't so hard that I couldn't sense that I was in dangerous territory. God's logic proved true. I had been worshiping her, this other young lady, instead of God for a long time. It was subtle at first, then overt. Sure, our friendship started out as one that honored God. Did I mention that we met on a mission trip? But in the end, it had become the devil's plaything. 
Friends, I wonder where I'd be today if those around me were accepting of the choices we were making. What if my church would have embraced us, even married us? I'm so afraid that many people who are struggling with how to sort these things out in their soul and who are still sensitive to the Spirit telling them it's wrong are going to be pushed into a lifestyle of opposition to God by the very people who claim to love them, even in their churches. Romans 1 warns them too, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. She goes on to write some sympathetic, powerful words. She says, Beloved brothers and sisters, if this battle rings true for you, I want you to know that I get it. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you have a very hard choice to make. I'm sorry because I know it doesn't feel like a choice at all. I'm sorry because more people may judge you for trusting Christ and repenting than for accepting your real self. I know how much you want it to be okay, but you'll have to decide some things. Foremost, you'll need to decide what the authority guiding your life will be. Will the Bible be your authority as it has been for Christians of all ages? Or will the shifting winds of culture win the day? If the Bible, you need to hunker down and genuinely look at what it says. Read those on both sides of the debate and pray that God will get you to truth, even if that truth is earth-shadowing. Jesus is worth the soul-searching anguish that may be awaiting you. One more paragraph. If you land where I did, then I understand that following Christ will mean giving up more than you can imagine. Take it from someone who has lied on their bedroom floor for days in a row, weeping, wanting to die, not sure of how to lose the only person they've taken comfort in for nearly a decade. Only God can get you through a choice like that. But friends, Jesus is worth a broken heart. In fact, He's the only one who can heal it. Again. about a hard choice? What, what courage to pen those words. And it's easy to think about that choice for someone else in today's culture, but I think... Her article challenges me to look at my life and say, what areas am I loving the world? What areas am I trying to straddle the fence? And, and what I have the faith, the boldness, the courage to draw a line in the sand as she did and say, no, Jesus, I, I choose you. One of the things we battle, maybe, maybe that thing's in your mind right now. What happens if I let, let this go? I, I lose so much. I, I stand to lose this or that. But Jesus said in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Sometimes following Jesus requires division. Sometimes it breaks relationships that are close to us, just as we just read. Look at verse 52. From now on there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Sometimes you take a stand for Jesus, like this young lady did. It will cost you close relationships. Some of you know that firsthand. One of you in here shared a story this week how family gatherings are sometimes 
very difficult because many in the family are missionaries and when they get together and share these joyous stories of, of what God's doing in other countries, there's one member of the family, a grandma, that will always, always leave the room. There's this division and they love her and have shared with her and she has not yet received. And it's not that they wish division with grandma. It's just that they've chosen Jesus and she has not yet. Remember Jesus' promise if you find yourself in that place. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters and so on for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. He goes on to say something that's basically in a nutshell. Pay attention to what's going on around you in the world. Verse 54, he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, he says. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? We live in a part of Prescott Valley where you can see Mingus Mountain. And I know this time of year when the clouds start piling up there early in the morning, most likely by the time afternoon comes, the monsoons are going to be upon our house. It's going to be storming. George and Deb Wheeler love to kayak. They're not here today. Uh, but they told me about a reservoir in Arizona. I forget the name of it, where they love to kayak. And they said there's only one, one boat dock where you can get in. The rest of the wet reservoir is steep. Steep cliffs and man-made walls. And there's only one way out. And they told me how they get out on that reservoir. And one time, a storm kicked up. It starts thundering and lightning. And they, they know what they need to do. What they need to do. They need to hightail it back to that one way out of the water. They look around and say, we need to get out of here. We need to, to respond to the weather that we see. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. He's saying, look, you, you know in, in Israel, when a cloud popped up over the Mediterranean, usually that would mean more clouds and then a storm would come in. When the hot wind started blowing up from Africa, they would know it's going to be a hot day. He's saying, you make weather judgments based on such little information. Look at everything you've heard from me. All the things I've taught you. Look at all the things you've seen about me. My power to do miracles and otherwise. And you still pretend as though you don't have enough information. He says, you're hypocrites. You've got plenty of information. You just need to make the right choice and place your trust in me. And I think about this. He's saying that to them 2,000 years ago, saying this is the spiritual weather around you. You need to respond. What's the spiritual weather today? Where are we at? Sometimes we get into this funk where... We might think, hey, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus has been here. Not a lot's going to change. Not a lot's changed in my life. Not a lot's going to change with Him coming back anytime soon. But Peter reminds us, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. Here's the spiritual climate, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That's coming, he says. That's the weather that's coming. How do we respond? P 
Peter says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives since you're looking forward to this. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. The response to the coming is, hey, if I'm a believer, walk in the power of the Spirit. Do what He's commanded me to do in His power. If I'm not a believer, come to the cross and embrace this Savior who died for you. Last part. He tells this story that I never... Never saw in this light till this week. I learned something this week that, that will forever change the way I look at this passage. Verse 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. You get the picture here. There's some kind of legal squabble between two people. And the, the person that's been wronged is taking the other person to court. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're on your way to court and you're the one that did the wrong, you better do your best to settle outside of court so that you don't get thrown in prison by that judge. Settle it before you even get to the court. And up to this week, I always took this passage just as practical advice about how important it is to reconcile brother to brother, sister to sister, do it quickly. And there are other passages that that bring that out. But almost every commentator that I looked at as we talked about this and as I talked about it with Eric and Justin, that this is a, a parable. It's a picture that Jesus is saying as we look at eternity, God is the judge. God is the judge. We are the wrongdoer in the story. And throughout this life, we're marching ever closer to that court. Where if we step in in our guilty state, we will be sentenced forever to eternity apart from God in hell. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you believe that's the case, if you believe you're a sinner, settle things before you leave this earth, before you stand before that judge. Come to a Savior who has given His life for you and receive His forgiveness Listen to what Jesus has done. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You feel that weight of your sin and you say, whoa, God put that on Jesus? He took my place? The encouragement from Jesus is here is come there, believe in that now in this life so that you will not face a judge who will send you to hell. John Calvin said this, by Jesus' obedience, He has wiped off our transgressions. By His sacrifice, He has appeased the divine anger. By His blood, He has washed away our sins. By His cross, He has borne our curse. And by His death, made satisfaction. That's the message that you and I carry in this world. Paul says we're ambassadors of that message. We ought to plead with people just as urgently as Jesus did here. Settle it, for you don't know when your time is coming. Come to Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to speak that message in today's world. 
Sometimes it's offensive. And, and I've been processing that. Paul says it's offensive. The message of the cross is an offense. Because what, what does it say? It says, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't fix this myself. All that's offensive to proud people. We all feel the offense of that before we come to it. I put this down. As we, as we think about sharing this, I've, I've got a, a slide that, that sort of, as I process through this sharing, someone you care about is in a sin created, a prison created by their own sin. And they, they reach out to you for help. How do you respond? First option is judgment, right? Oh, well. Good riddance. Cruelty is an option. And what's interesting is what, what I call cruelty, the world often calls tolerance. Here's the cruelty I'm talking about. You're just fine. Celebrate where you are. Embrace it. The world calls that tolerance. From a biblical perspective, I call that the worst kind of cruelty that there is. It's, it's a lie. Or love. And interestingly, the world will often call love intolerance. Here's love. I've been there, and if I'm really honest, I go back in sometimes. But let me introduce you to someone who got me out and show you how he can get you out too. How do we respond? Now, a couple things in here. You notice I put at the top, they, they reach out for help. That implies I've already got a relationship with this person. I think that's the ideal scenario. You look at even the context of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying some hard things, but look at everything that's gone before it. He has come into our world as a human. He has met us where we're at. He has been born. He has grown up. He has felt hunger and tiredness and dealt with the sins of men around him for, for 30 plus years. He's felt the weight of all that. He's felt what it is to be tempted. He's met them where they're at. Now he's speaking the truth. Have we met the people in our lives where they're at? Hugh Halter says it like this. Incarnation, be, taking on flesh, meeting people where they're at, leads to a reputation, which leads to a conversation, which leads to confrontation of sin, which then leads to transformation. He says when most evangelicals think of evangelism, they start at confrontation. That's still an important part of spiritual rebirth. It's just that Jesus doesn't start there. He came into our world to seek and save what was lost, to meet us face to face in our sin. Caesar Kalinowski says, Is it possible to be fundamentally for someone holistically but disagree with or oppose some aspects of their personality behavior, lifestyle, or identity? A great question. It's a crying shame that in our nation today, it's automatically assumed that if we don't agree with someone's choices or views, that we must be opposed to them. How do we convey that I love you, and yet I have a disagreement with you, based on what the Bible says? It's by building that incarnational relationship. Building that bridge. Sometimes speaking this message brings division. But let me ask you a question. Would you rather have a unified world where everyone is marching to hell together? Or a world because of what Jesus did where some are divided out and saved because of His grace?
That's the only way to the unity that we desire. You look at the new heaven and the new earth. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. You hear the togetherness there and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Death is separation or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The only path to the unity that we desire is to make a choice about Jesus. And I believe Him. He is my Savior. Ravi Zacharias. Love that guy. <laughs> I was listening to him this week and he said one of the greatest questions that Greek philosophers wrestled with is how do you find unity and diversity? And he says that's where we actually get our modern day term university. Did you know that? Unity and diversity. University is was, was a great quest of the, the Greeks. Even in America, on our money, e pluribus unum, out of the plurality, one. But he says this. Ravi says, you will never find that unity until you learn to worship God in spirit and in truth. Only in worship do we find that unity. So what's worship? He quotes Archbishop William Temple. Listen to this. If you thought it was just singing, this, this definition is going to shake you a little bit. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of conscience by His holiness. The nourishment of the mind by His truth. Purifying of imagination by His beauty. Opening of the heart to His love and submission of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we're capable. That brings cohesion on the inside and an expression on the outside that is the ultimate pleasure. And that's why we're told at His right hand are pleasures forever.